Welcome to Created to Reign, a production of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. The Cornwall Alliance is a ministry dedicated to helping fulfill the mandate God gave mankind in Genesis 1.28, to subdue and rule the earth in a way that enhances its fruitfulness, its beauty, and its safety for the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors. I'm David Arley Gates, and our topic today is bias in science. For those of you following along with our podcast, you will have heard our five-part discussion of the National Association of Evangelicals report, Loving the Least of These, Addressing a Changing Environment. This report is little more than a call to arrest all fossil fuel use because the combustion of fossil fuels generates carbon dioxide, which the NAE believes is an existential threat to the well-being of the planet. On pages 31 and 32, their report has a breakout box entitled Preventing Bias in Science. And when Cal Beisner and I both saw this box, we commented that me thinks they protest too much. According to the intro, there are a number of mechanisms built into modern science that make it less likely that a conflict of interest or bias would keep scientists from reporting the truth. The report goes on to list a number of points to make their case. Really? Having spent more than 40 years in academia, been affiliated with state government, and taken a short sojourn in the Department of Commerce and the White House, I have a hands-on perspective of what really happens behind the scenes of science. So let us proceed together to investigate the claims of the NAE as to why conflicts of interest and biases do not affect climate science. Their first point is that scientists on prestigious panels, such as the National Academies or the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, are unpaid and receive no royalties. They are merely volunteers, so that this status, quote, lowers the risk of a bias towards what people want to hear. Well, make no mistake, these scientists are paid, but not necessarily in money. Serving on such panels brings high prestige to both the researcher and his or her home institution. I remember when the IPCC was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. It's not a prize in science, by the way. And many scientists who had participated were glamorized by their universities. Grant monies are easier to come by if you are invited to participate in these prestigious panels, and that leads to easier publication paths as well as raises and promotions from your home institutions. And how do you get your name on these panels? Of course, you must say what they want to hear. The next point made by the NAE report is that scientists from both private and public sectors are included in these reports, and panel members are known to the public. But the NAE report does not make the argument that all sides of a debate are represented. One can find the same bias in both public and private sectors. And once again, you must say what the National Academies or the IPCC want to hear, otherwise you will not be invited to the panel. Bias can always exist regardless of where one is employed. Third, the report states, quote, many scientists began climate research only after the data began to show concretely how much human activities were altering Earth systems, unquote. I would argue that many scientists began to study climate research when it became an academic cash cow. 
Back in 1990, I was at the University of Oklahoma when they were celebrating the 100th anniversary of the university following the Central Oklahoma land run of 1889. Many prominent scientists were brought in to discuss where they had thought the research agenda of their expertise would be headed in the next decade and beyond. Dr. Robert Correll, former head of the U.S. Office for the Global Energy Assessment, discussed the future of meteorology. He lamented the fact that atmospheric science was a poor stepchild, while interstellar astrophysicists got lots of money to build spaceships and telescopes, and solid-earth geophysicists got lots of money to dig big holes in the ground. But, he said, atmospheric science was on the precipice of a major paradigm shift, and due to climate change and global warming, we would be receiving grant money beyond our wildest dreams. I expected him to outline all of the possible advancements in atmospheric science that would arise from this infusion of cash. You know, better weather forecasts, more detail in our understanding of atmospheric processes, a better understanding of the interactions between the atmosphere, the oceans, the land surface, sea ice, land ice. But no, instead, he left us with a warning. We had better not kill the goose that is about to lay the golden egg. We all received the message loud and clear. Tell Congress and those writing the checks what they want to hear so they will keep the grant monies coming to atmospheric science. The next point made by the NAE report is that many climate researchers get funding from other fields, and they review articles and evaluate grant applications, which provides an anti-bias oversight. To this, I simply say two words, how review. I have served as an editor of a major journal, and I know I could make or break any submission by simply choosing who reviews it. I have also served on National Science Foundation panels, and I know that many reviewers simply rate grants based on who is submitting it and whether it fits their preconceived ideas about the science it purports to study. Such peer review has long been criticized for numerous reasons. Paul Hollander, writing in the journal Atmospheric Questions in 2013, concluded, quote, Peer review can be a dangerous and unpredictable process, even when not influenced by prevailing orthodoxies. It is impossible to guess what portion of these reviews is subject to similar personal animosities and idiosyncratic judgments. Political correctness is not the only factor undermining peer review as it was originally conceived. There are problems peculiar to the process, given the complete freedom from responsibility of the reviewer and the freedom of editors to select reviewers with possible ulterior motives or a personal agenda. But most difficult to overcome are the inherent limitations of human beings, their questionable and faltering capacity to be objective or impartial. These limitations are magnified when some prevailing orthodoxy, such as political correctness, encourages them to subordinate scholarly detachment and intellectual judgment to other less than fully reputable impulses and motives, unquote. As I was preparing this podcast, an article was released by Retraction Watch. It noted, quote, after months of investigation that identified networks of reviewers and editors manipulating the peer review process, Hindawi, a publishing company, plans to retract 511 papers across 16 journals, unquote. 
In related news, IOP Publishing retracted nearly 500 articles, likely from paper mills earlier this month, and PLOS, the Public Library of Science, in August announced the retraction of over 100 papers from its flagship journal over manipulated peer review. This amounts to more than 1,100 articles retracted in just the last two months. Moreover, a senior vice president of research for Wiley Publishing, a major publisher of research articles, said that attacks on research integrity such as paper mills, manipulated peer review, and image duplication and doctoring, quote, are sophisticated and appear to be coordinated, unquote. And they too are looking into retracting more papers. The fifth point made by the NAE report is that scientists compete to do repeatable science that stands up to review, and they continually revisit and test their processes and assumptions. This statement is patently false. In an article written in 2005 entitled Why Most Published Research Findings Are False, John Ioannidis wrote, quote, there is increasing concern that most current published research findings are false. A research finding is less likely to be true when the studies conducted in a field are smaller, when there is greater financial and other interest and prejudice, and when more teams are involved in a scientific field in a chase for statistical significance. Simulations show that for most study designs and settings, it is more likely for a research claim to be false than true. Moreover, for many current scientific fields, claimed research findings may often be simply accurate measures of the prevailing bias, unquote. In a famous NOVA program entitled Do Scientists Cheat, first aired on PBS in 1988, Professor Leon Kamen of the Northeastern University said, Yet only a small percentage of the science done every year gets the attention given cutting-edge work in a hot field. With one million scientific papers published every year, it's likely many are never even read. Most are not repeated. If you apply to a granting agency saying, I'd like to repeat this work, you're likely to be told, why repeat this work? We want to advance knowledge. We want new knowledge. The granting agency will support not a mere repetition of what's already well known. Show us something exciting and new, and we might support it. Finally, NAE argues that scientists come from all walks of life different political systems, and different funding streams. Some are deeply religious, and some are not. Then they name some prominent climate scientists who are evangelical Christians, and I will note, who are also climate alarmists. But this is a red herring. Just because they come from diverse countries, political systems, and backgrounds, does not ensure a lack of bias. In particular, when the lure of money is strong, the lure of bias also is strong even in science, but especially in climate science. So let me leave you with the famous quote from President Dwight D. Eisenhower in his farewell speech. Many people know it for his discussion of the military-industrial complex. But President Eisenhower also says, Akin to and largely responsible for the sweeping changes in our industrial military posture has been the technological revolution during recent decades. In this revolution, research has become central. It also becomes more formalized, complex, and costly. A steadily increasing share is conducted for, by, or at the direction of the federal government. In the same fashion, 
the free university, historically the fountainhead of free ideas and scientific discovery, has experienced a revolution in the conduct of research, partly because of the huge costs involved, a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. The prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. Yet in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. President Eisenhower was very prescient in that within the science of climate change, public policy has indeed become a captive to the scientific technological elite for whom federal employment and the power of money has exhibited a truly corrupting force that has adversely biased scientific inquiry. Well, thank you for listening to Created to Reign, produced by the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify and share the episode link with your friends. To learn more or to support our ministry with a 100% tax-deductible donation, please visit cornwallalliance.org. Until next time, I am David Arley Gates, and may God richly bless you.